Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Greetings, brothers and sisters in Christ. This weekend is the fourth and final Sunday in the season of Advent in the church. This is still the second year, year B of the church calendar, and we're looking forward to the coming of Christ as we celebrate Christmas together in the week ahead. But for now, what do we have? We have an Old Testament reading from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 11, and verse 16. And then we have the epistle from Romans chapter 16, it's verses 25 to 27, followed by the Gospel of Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. So, Advent's theme, the coming of Jesus, and this week, especially that Gospel reading, is going to be focusing on the Annunciation, when the angel Gabriel declares to Mary that she will conceive and bear a son. And that son is Jesus, who will fulfill the prophecy that we have in our Old Testament text from 2 Samuel. So that's where we're going to begin. Uh, it's verses 1 through 11 and verse 16 of 2 Samuel that we're reading together today. Now, 2 Samuel, really originally written, wasn't second. Um, 2 Samuel, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel weren't distinct from each other. Uh, it was just one larger book. It's most likely, if I remember my history correctly here, that just the sheer size of the volumes, just like with First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Kings, made it easier for them to be subdivided into two, uh, just because of how how books were made at the time. How you think of a scroll or papyrus, those kinds of materials are thicker than our computer paper that we have today. So the binding of a book was difficult to do, especially if it got thicker. That's my understanding um, of that history, at least. If so, we look at then Second Samuel in our English Bibles. And what you have with 2 Samuel really is a focus on the reign of David as king over Israel, whereas 1 Samuel focused on Samuel the prophet and then eventually the king who would replace God in Israel's hierarchy by their own request. And that's Saul. David comes into play in the book of 1 Samuel, but the focus is on Saul's reign as king over Israel. So 2 Samuel narrows in on David. We'll read this in probably two different chunks here. Now when the king lived in his house, and Yahweh had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for Yahweh is with you. So David David has just moved to the city of Jerusalem, establishing it as his home and the place from which he will reign over the nation of Israel. And we see here, um, Yahweh had given him rest, so it's been God that has been fighting for him. Enemies have arisen, without a doubt. I mean, Israel had its enemies even when Saul was king. So, for example, the Philistines, as to David slayed Goliath, that's one example of that fight. That was an ongoing battle. So the Philistines are mentioned in the beginning chapters of this book. But also the, the struggles for control over Israel. 
you know, as you think of Saul dying and, and a power struggle that may ensue from the loss of a king, it takes a little while to get David established over all of Israel. So that's happened. He is now the king over the entire nation. There's no dispute any longer about that. And won't be for a while until one of his sons fights for his throne several chapters from now. So instead, he has rest. Verse 2, this is the first time we hear Nathan the prophet's name mentioned. We hear the name Nathan once before, back in chapter 5, as that's going to be one of the names David, sorry, almost said Daniel, that David gives to one of his sons likely named after the prophet himself with their relationship that they have together in the years to come. So Nathan the prophet is going to serve the Lord as the one who speaks his word to his people, and he's going to do that for David. Most notably, the thing that we know about Nathan, I think as the church today, is his response to David after David commits the sin of adultery with Bathsheba and murders her husband Uriah. It's a few chapters down the road here. But Nathan responds with that story about the man who had a sheep. And then there was a, a rich man who had you know, lots of sheep. So the poor man, that one sheep he had, he, he had it as a part of his family. It was like a daughter to him. When the rich man ends up having a feast, he sacrifices not one of his own sheep. He takes the poor man's sheep and sacrifices it for that feast. And David cries out, what a great crime that that was. And then Nathan turns the tables and says, you are that man. So that's probably what we know Nathan the prophet best for in scripture. But this is where he first shows up. And sadly, the first thing we see Nathan do is actually false. First thing he says in, in the Bible is wrong as he tells David to do what's in David's heart and that Yahweh is with him. But Nathan didn't actually inquire of the Lord about this thing. As a prophet of God, here he doesn't speak that way. He doesn't speak for God. He speaks of his own heart, his own mind. And as a prophet, that's not what you're supposed to do. So he... I assume, and it is an assumption, I'm assuming he's learning his lesson pretty quickly here as God is going to, in the very next sentence, uh, turn over that account. Now, it's worth saying here with verse 2 that David's intention is good. David sees and says, you know, I have a house, I have a house made of cedar. My Lord lives in a tent. His desire here is honorable. The Lord deserves more glory than me. The Lord deserves greater honor than David. That is true. So again, David's intent here is a good thing, as is Nathan's. Verse 4. That same night the word of Yahweh came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says Yahweh, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved, with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, 
Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, I took you from the pasture and from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, Yahweh declares to you that Yahweh will make you a house. So rather than telling Nathan, rather than telling David to do whatever's in his heart, which isn't good advice for the Christian anyway, um, the one who follows God knows that our hearts are inclined to sin. Well, God responds to Nathan here and gives him the words to speak to David. So Nathan learning how to be a prophet. And that's what this whole paragraph ends up being, is the words that Nathan is to speak to the king. It starts with the prophet's formula. Thus says Yahweh, thus saith the Lord. This is what you are to say to David. Would you build me a house to dwell in? Would we, could we? God's perfection, God's holiness is so much greater than we are. Can we build something with our hands that can properly hold God? No. Arguably, the answer to that is actually a surprising yes, as we see with the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Quite an exquisite design, if you look at the blueprint that begins around Exodus chapter 25, and that God speaks to Moses in verse 9 of that chapter, telling him that they, exactly as I have shown you, is how it's to be built. So it's not do whatever we want, it's do what God wants, and to do it his way. That tabernacle was quite quite a sight to behold, and it's still with David at this time. It'll be replaced when his son takes the throne. God will allow Solomon to build the temple. Now that's actually in the verses we miss. Uh, we skip over verses 12 to 15 uh, in this text, but God does tell David through Nathan that his son will build a house for him. God recounts the history here, verse 6. He has not lived in a house. He's lived in a tent, but he's not lived in a house, a permanent structure. Really, ever. I mean, here we have from the day it brought up Israel to this day. So it's a reference, a reminder of what God has done for his people, that he saved them from the land of Egypt. He delivered them from their slavery as they cried out to him for help. From that day until this day. So we have gone beyond entering the promised land. Israel is now on their second king in the promised land. I guess third king, if you count God himself, whom they rejected early on. They've been in the promised land for a little while now. 
So God has not had a house. He's not asked for a house. And that's what the next part is about. Instead, he's been moving about in a tent, which was created by his own command. Again, Exodus chapter 25. He, he instructed the people to make that tent for him, not the other way around. Interestingly enough, you do have the connection there to the, the transfiguration account that Peter offers to make tents for Moses and Elijah and Jesus. What is it about man wanting to build God a house? That may say something about us. Both good and bad, perhaps. Good because we seek to care for him, although he doesn't need us to care for him. But perhaps also bad to think that we can somehow contain him. God here in the verse 7, I, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Is a question he's never asked. He, he's never wanted this. He's never asked for this. In verse 8, God reminds David of his humble origin, taken from the pasture, from being a shepherd of the sheep, that he would instead shepherd God's sheep, that he would be prince over the people of Israel, that he would rule over man. This is God's doing. God has raised him up. God has done this. God has saved Israel. God has made David king. If God really wants a house, God could make himself a house. That's kind of where this text seems to be going. Again, we skip over that. We don't get to that. Verse 9, I have been with you wherever you went. Which is a good reminder. The pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud, of the work of God and all of those events in the Exodus years, the wilderness wandering years, miracle after miracle those people saw. God was always with them. Now, this is a promise you have today. Jesus directly makes you this promise in God's word in the New Testament. Matthew 28, 20 is one example of that. I am with you always to the end of the age. Earlier in that gospel account, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Jesus has promised you that he is with you and that he will be with you always. That's a fantastic promise. One that is truly uplifting because God is our shield. He is our strength. Not only is he with them, was he with them, he cut off all their enemies. God fought for them. They watched God obliterate the Egyptian army as he drowned them all in the Red Sea. They watched God overcome enemy after enemy on their behalf. And David has seen this as well. David truly trusted in this when he went to take on Goliath, despite all the disadvantage he had. There's a noticeable size difference between those two men. If you even want to call David a man at that point of his life. A man versus a boy. A giant versus a, well... A kid that still hasn't grown up. And even if he had, he still wouldn't be the size of Goliath. Goliath's vast armor. And the strength of his weapons. 
against David. Pretty much armorless and with just a sling in hand. And yet David knew that it was not him but the Lord who would fight that day. That the Lord would not stand by and allow his people to be destroyed. So David went into that fight with trust and confidence that God would fight for him. And God did. As you're going through verses 8 and 9 and 10, notice the subject of all these verbs. I have been with you. I have cut off your enemies. I will make your name great. I will appoint a place for my people. I will plant them. I mean, again and again here, God is the subject of these verbs. God is the one who does these things for us. When you stop and think about it, the relationship we have with God as his people is pretty one-sided. It's about what God does for us. He gives, and he gives, and he gives, and he gives. And he ultimately gave his own life. That you might not die, but rather live. That your sins would be forgiven. That you would get to be with him in his paradise. And in all of this, God is not making demands. He's not asking us to do this thing, that thing all the time. He is simply giving and giving and giving of himself all the time. After generations of sojourning, the Israelites will finally have a home. And when you think about it, they have been sojourners since Abraham, still Abram in Genesis chapter 12, left his homeland of Ur. They've been tent dwellers. They've never had a permanent home until now. That's verse 10, that God has appointed a place for them. He has planted them. They can take roots. They can settle down. They can, they can plan to live there for, for generations. They can plant their fields. They can reap a harvest. They couldn't do that in the wilderness, which is why God fed them with the manna in Exodus chapter 16 and did so for 40 years. Violent men shall afflict them no more. The enemies, as we saw, God gave them rest back in verse 1. God will continue to give his people rest in the years to come. Now, their rejection of him, their continued sinful nature, and turning against the Lord will eventually bring enemies upon them. But for now, they have peace. Then verse 11, God declares that he will make David a house. So David wants to make God a house, but God is saying, I will make you a house. And that's what we then read in verse 16. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is not talking about a physical house of David. David lives in a house of cedar. His son Solomon is going to build a palace. It's not that that palace is going to endure forever. 
This is a reference to the lineage of David, to his kingship. In the house of David, the reign of David, King David, is going to last forever. His kingdom is going to last forever. His rule over God's people through one of his descendants will go on forever. We see that forever word here in the text, before God forever. David's throne will remain. Your throne shall be established forever. That's quite a promise. And whether David hears it correctly or not is hard to say. If David thought that his people would forever be rulers in this world, or if David actually recognized the messianic promise that was in this verse, that this isn't talking about earthly kings who would come and go, although there were many of those in the next couple of hundred years. I mean, we're, we're in the very, well, we're probably in the, right around the year 1000 BC. So the next 400 years or so, a little over 400 years, as it takes till 587 BC for Judah to finally fall, Jerusalem finally falls in its wickedness, its sinfulness. So that's a long duration of time, but the promise is forever because it's based not in an earthly king, but in a Messiah who would come from David's family tree, from his line, from his house. And that's what we're going to be reading about in our gospel text. But let's cover our epistle first. And that text from Romans chapter 16 really is the conclusion of the entire letter to the church in Rome as Paul writes this. Uh, you could also call it a doxology. Uh, doxology is uh, Greek for a word of glory or a word of praise. Uh, so that's what Paul is doing here. He's giving thanks to God. He's praising the Lord. He's giving glory to the Lord himself. And that's exactly what we're going to see in this paragraph. I'm just going to read the paragraph and we'll unpack it. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, According to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, really, you will notice, if you're looking at the text here, just take that word now at the start of verse 25 and move it down to the beginning of verse 27. Now to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. That's the purpose. Like, that's the statement. Everything in between, pretty much all of verse 25 and certainly all of 26, is describing who this God is. And there's good stuff in there. I'm not saying delete it from your Bible, by no means. Just trying to point out grammatically how the sentence itself plays out. Essentially, the, the doxology is verse 27, but it gives praise to God because of all this other stuff that he has done. He is the one who is able, capable, powerful to strengthen you to encourage you, to, to build you up against sin and death, and to do so through that forgiveness that he has won for you on the cross. 
How many times do we see that word according to in this? One, two, three? Is it just three? Still three times um, as you unpack this thing. This is quite the, oh, what's that English term? For the type of clause that this is, I don't, I don't recall. Um, if you're good at grammar, you might know what I'm referring to, but when you basically put put a, a set of commas into your sentence with an explanation in between. So Paul, an apostle, loves the Lord. An apostle is just a description given. And there's so much in this description of, of who God is. Again and again and again, it just keeps going in Paul's run-on sentence writing fashion. According to the gospel. So the gospel is what strengthens you. The forgiveness of sins, the promise of the resurrection, that is what gives you hope. It doesn't matter what you face in this life and in this world. You have strength through the gospel. If your day is going well, great. You have strength in the gospel. If your day is going miserably, you draw strength from the gospel. I mean, your hope is not in this world. You lost your job. It's going to be okay. There may be hard times ahead. Sure, that could be true. It may well be true, but you have the promise of Christ, that he is with you, that he is for you, that he will care for you, and that ultimately you get to live with him in paradise forever. And the days of this life are just a blip on that scale of eternity. You might live 120 years. But that's like nothing in the scope of eternity. And you have all of that with him. That's the hope that we have of a world without sin, of a world without death, of a world without suffering and pain and tears and sorrow. All of that gone. Where we get to live with the, the God who is good who has made all things for us and he is making us new and he will take us to be with himself in his paradise. That's the promise that you have. That's the hope that you have. So if you've lost your job or if you're, you're sick or you're really sick, you still have that hope. This is why Christians throughout the world and throughout the world's history have been able to stand in the face of persecution, have been able to stand and continue to believe what they have in the gospel, in Christ, because they know that there is a better thing coming. They have a hope. This is what the Paul's, sorry, Peter's first Peter epistle is all about, that we suffer with Christ. And that as we do so, we do so prepared to share the hope that is in us with our neighbor, that they too might have that hope in Christ. First Peter gives really a lot of a lot of hope to the Christian who suffers. It may be better stated, it gives you the purpose to our suffering. That is to share in Christ's suffering and to be a blessing to others. Now, Paul does say here, my gospel, uh, there's only one. 
This isn't like Paul's gospel versus Jesus' gospel. Paul's gospel is Jesus' gospel. It is now also your gospel. So you could say my gospel. Good news. And the preaching of Christ, you could look at that as a synonym to my gospel just before it. But it is true that Christ preached both the law and the gospel, and that he used both of those things very well for the good of his people where he needed to use them. Can God strengthen us through the law? Can he build us up against sin and death through the law? That's a trickier question. I think most of the time we would say he builds and he encourages through the gospel. But there are times where Christ tears down, where he uses the law to tear us down, that he may build us up again. So there's a place for the law in preaching, without a doubt. Another according to... So Jesus strengthens you according to the revelation of the mystery. So that's a reference to salvation. How are we saved? This is Genesis 3.15, the proto-evangelium, the, the first good news. How, how will God save us from our fall into sin? And for 4,000-ish years, that was a mystery. There were bits and pieces, there were glimpses, but the people never put it all together. And then Jesus came and the mystery was revealed. It was made known to us that we are saved by Christ through his blood, through his death, through his resurrection. We have life in him. We have the forgiveness of sins. Through his gifts that he continues to give to us through his word and through his sacrament, we continue to be blessed. We continue to be forgiven we continue to be encouraged and strengthened and built up. This mystery has been made known. Uh, it has been revealed. That's literally what the church season of Epiphany is about. Epiphanos, revealed, made known. And so as we celebrate that season after Christmas, when does Epiphany start? So this is fourth Sunday in Advent. We have the first and the second Sunday after Christmas. And then we'll have Epiphany. Epiphany is 12 days after Christmas. So you do have a real genuine Christmas season that lasts for 12 days. The 12 days of Christmas song is actually a Christian song. Uh, a lot of metaphors that you have to unpack in that one. So Epiphany starts after January 6th every year. Well, I guess on January 6th every year. And that is the celebration that God has revealed this mystery to us, to all people, to all the nations. And it often is done uh, through the visit of the Magi. That text becomes a prominent fixture in the, the season of Epiphany because the Magi are not Jews. They're not Israel. They're priests of entirely different faith. And yet the Savior is made known to them and they believe and we can only imagine that they take that good news home with them. Just as the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8 takes the good news home with him. Just as the, the church in Jerusalem that was several thousand strong is persecuted in Acts chapter 7 at the death of Stephen and they scatter and they take that gospel with them wherever they went. And the church really explodes.
the mystery was made known. It was made known to us. And for that, we thank the Lord always. He has made it known to all the nations, as was his plan from the very beginning. Now, there is a scripture, and I should have looked this one up. I'm sorry I didn't. Uh, there is a scripture out there that says that the Lord's return, his second coming, will not happen until the gospel has been shared to all nations. And here, Paul in Romans 16 is claiming that that has already happened. It has been made known to all nations. So that is no longer a condition, a criteria that the, the second coming of Christ hinges upon. That one's already been fulfilled. I would simply put before you all the criteria for the second coming of Christ have been fulfilled. He could come back at this very moment. If he does, hallelujah, rejoice, praise the Lord. According to, so our third according to, so God is strengthening us through the gospel. He's strengthening us through revealing to us how we are saved. He is strengthening us now, even through his command. command that the gospel be made known to all nations, which we find in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And also Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will be my witnesses. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Judea and Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. I haven't said that one as many times as I've said the Matthew 28 verse. But the command of Christ that the gospel be taken to all nations right there in both of those spots to bring about the obedience of faith. Now that strikes us as a very odd phrase. We think of faith as a gift that God has given to us. We think of obedience as something that we do. I would argue here our, our struggle with this phrase of it sounding like an oxymoron. Our struggle here is that we think of obedience as something that we do. We can't do faith. We have faith as a gift. We are saved by faith, not by works. The original root of this word obedience, even if you look it up in the, the etymology in English, the root of this word has much more to do with listening than it does doing. And Paul, already in this letter back in chapter 10, has said that faith comes by hearing. I think that pretty easily actually clears up this oxymoron and makes it make sense to us um, that we would listen, that the that as the command was given to take the gospel to all nations, by hearing the faith, by hearing this command, by hearing this gospel, people would have faith. So that's all the stuff in between. Now to him, who can do all this, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Glory 
is to be lifted up. It's to have others looking at you for usually what you've done or, or who you are even. And so God is going to be uplifted. He is going to be seen by the world for who he is and for what he's done. And the answer of what that looks like is the through word, a couple words later, through Jesus Christ. So how does this glory come? It comes through Jesus. It comes through his death and through his resurrection. Because his death has cleansed the world of all sin, and his resurrection has granted life again. And that glorifies the Father. Because the day is coming when Christ does return and you will glorify God forever. You will look to the Lord. You will lift him up forevermore as the God who made you and the God who saved you and the God who continues to provide for you each and every day for the rest of eternity. Now that could be an oxymoron. The rest of eternity. I mean... Eternity never ends. Every day for the rest of forever, God cares for you. And we, we glorify him. We look to him for that care, for that provision. And it's all through what Jesus has done for us that God gets that glory. So God the Father sent God the Son to save us. And the Son sent the Holy Spirit to give us faith and to, to then point us back to him. So the Spirit points us to Christ, and Christ restores us to the Father, causes us to glorify the Father. Forevermore. Forevermore. Amen. Amen is the Greek word and the Hebrew word, actually, both languages, for truly. Indeed, all of this that Paul has just written is true. Indeed. Amen. Lastly, that brings us to our gospel text for the week, which is from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. Now, Luke writes this as a history account, uh, as you can read in the very first four verses of the letter, uh, a history account to a man named Theophilus which is Greek for lover of God. A lover as in friend. So Luke here has already accounted for Gabriel's visit to an older couple, a priest, Zechariah, and his wife, Elizabeth. He has given them the good news that they will have a child. And that's the reference then that we're going to get in the very opening of this section from verse 26, which says, in the sixth month. It's in the sixth month of that pregnancy that Elizabeth has. So that little boy, whose name is John, John the Baptist, that she will give birth to in the future, a few months later. That's the reference point as we start our text. So we'll, We'll take this in two chunks. We'll do 26 to 33 first, and then we'll finish 34 to 38. In the second month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name 
was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So again, Elizabeth's pregnancy is now in the sixth month. And at that moment, at that time, Gabriel is going to appear to Mary. Now, the angel Gabriel. Angel is a word that means messenger. Um, angelos is the Greek word. An angel is a messenger of God. So, primary function, delivering messages. And that's exactly what Gabriel has been sent to do here. Gabriel's name means God is my strength or God is my strong man. And it's a Hebrew name. Gabriel himself is one of only two angels in God's word that gets a name. The other is Michael, which is Hebrew for who is like God. So we don't know much about angels. We know their functions, at least a few of their functions. Again, delivering messages, um, serving the Lord in his temple, fighting for the Lord as we think of the spiritual warfare between the devil and the Lord. So the fallen angels and the, the angels that are faithful fight against each other. And also even guarding us. That guardian angel thing has some merit in Scripture. But again, only two of them get named out of legions of them. We don't know how many there are. There's so much unknown about angels. But we get just a little, little peek here at both the name of an angel and the function. Sent from God to a city of Galilee. Galilee is a region rather than being a city itself. Galilee is a region and it's west of the Sea of Galilee and it's north of Samaria. So if that helps you find it on a map, um, probably would have been what we would have considered in the Old Testament era, northern Israel like the north part of the kingdom. Not all of Israel itself. Now, specifically in Galilee, then, it's a village known as Nazareth, a city of Nazareth. Nazareth is going to be in south-central Galilee. So if you're looking at a map, there are two rivers... I didn't, I didn't spot the names for them. There's a river coming that flows, I guess it flows into the Mediterranean Sea. But if you're just looking at a map, it looks like it's coming off of the Mediterranean Sea eastward. And then there's a river coming westward off of the Jordan River. And the two rivers, they don't quite touch. There's some land in between them. And just north of that spot in between those two rivers is where you would find this little city of Nazareth. So Gabriel has gone specifically to Nazareth, and now even more specifically, he's gone to one person, to a virgin. 
betrothed, grammatically speaking, like in terms of the word itself, that's similar to our word engaged. We don't typically use betrothed in English today. But in terms of the actual function of what that meant, culturally speaking, it's nothing like our engagement today. And you can get engaged one day and you can break off that engagement the next day. And yeah, there'd be some broken heart going on in there, but by and large, it wouldn't make any change significantly. I mean, there's no, there's no legally binding occurrence in an engagement. That just wasn't true then. In the Jewish eyes, when a woman was betrothed to a man, they were pledged to be married. They were essentially already married. There was a waiting period to ensure that the woman herself had been faithful, that she was was waiting for marriage, that she was a virgin. And so they waited during that period of time, and when that period of time would end, they would come together. They would they would get married, finally. They would be husband and wife. And so betrothal in the ancient Near Eastern culture of, of Judaism, very different than today's engagement practice. You were already legally bound to one another by this betrothal. So she is bound, she is virgin, bound to Joseph. Joseph's name means to add to or to do again, just in case you're curious since we're doing so many names in today's text. And Mary's name means bitter. So a virgin, Gabriel appears in Nazareth to a virgin who is betrothed to Joseph, who is of the house of David. So there's your second Samuel promise, our Old Testament reading that someone would sit on David's throne, someone from his house would sit on his throne forever. There hasn't been anyone on that throne for 400 years, 500 years. Well, actually, probably about 575 years, if we're trying to be specific, because you've got 587 BC is when that throne was was destroyed. And Jesus isn't born until maybe 6, 5, or 4 BC, somewhere in that range, just a couple of years before the, the turn of the calendar to A.D., So a good 580 years there where that throne is not occupied. And even at that, you probably wouldn't say Jesus occupies the throne when he's a baby. Although I think in Christian theology, we probably do say that because he's God and he can. But it's not something acknowledged for a while, that's for sure, by by the people living at the time. They don't see that connection yet. Now imagine, verse 28 is a bit striking. It's striking first off because it's not the way an angel typically greets a person when they arrive. Usually your first words from the angel's mouth are actually what we see from Gabriel next, which doesn't happen until verse 30. Do not be afraid, Mary. Do not fear. Those are usually the words first out of an angel's mouth when they greet man. But Gabriel here doesn't go with that tactic. He instead starts by saying, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. 
which is quite a sentence. Favored one. Yeah, Mary is favored. There have been billions of women in the history of this creation. Billions of them. There, I mean, there's close to 4 billion of them alive today. There have been many more women who have lived in the thousands of years of history in this world. And out of all of those women, God chose this one. This young virgin living in Nazareth, betrothed to a carpenter. He chose this one. He chose Mary. Can't tell you why. I can't tell you why she found favor in the eyes of God. Some, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ in the Catholic Church circles, would argue that it's because she had avoided sin. I don't buy that argument. I don't think that's a scriptural argument. We have sinners in scripture who are called favored or righteous in the eyes of the Lord. Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So I think we should focus on her faith in this statement, that she trusts God uh, and does so strongly. But beyond that, I'm just not sure how much we can actually say other than what the scriptures tell us. God has chosen her. God has, God, God favors her. And this is good. That's about all I know. And that's okay. Out of the billions, God has chosen her and he is with her. She hears that and her response is to be greatly troubled. Admittedly, when an angel appears, everyone is troubled at the angel's appearance. At least if the angel is making their appearance known. Apparently angels can mask their appearance if we look at scripture elsewhere. But in an odd twist of events, it almost seems in this text as though Mary's trouble at the appearance of the angel isn't so much actually at Gabriel's appearance, as striking as it was, but she is greatly troubled at his words, at the saying, and she's trying to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Mary is baffled by being called favored and hearing that the Lord is with her. That's the thing that troubles her. Why would God look on me? She can't figure it out. And it's at that point, then, that the angel Gabriel says those common first angelic words, Do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive. So she's going to have a child. It is argued by the church historically that it is in this very moment that the conception will actually occur. I shouldn't say this very moment. It is in the middle of this. It is... It is as a part of this conversation, probably our next paragraph, um, when the angel departs from her after she says, let it be according to your word. It is believed in the Annunciation itself, that is when the incarnation occurs, that in, this, in that latter moment of the text, the Holy Spirit conceives the child, the Christ child, within Mary's womb. 
the church has actually pegged this day down as March 25th in the history of the church uh, and a connection to the Passover account. And it is because of that historically that the church has decided to celebrate Christmas on December 25th. Contrary to popular belief and in American culture that says Christmas is a, a stolen pagan holiday and December 25th was picked to cover up a winter celebration of the pagan faiths, no, actually the church very early on, even in the second century, already recognized March 25th as the day of the incarnation. And we know, pretty simply speaking, that a baby after conception is born nine months later, give or take. And so the church counted out nine months from March 25th, and they landed on December 25th, and they've been celebrating Christmas on that day ever since. So this wonderful gift of, of the incarnation, that God, Jesus Christ, would take on flesh, that he would come down to be among us. Beautiful thing. Beautiful thing. She will bear a son. She will carry a son. She will give birth to a son. And they will name him Jesus. Jesus is, actually it's Hebrew in origin. It's, it's Joshua in the Old Testament. Uh, Yeshua, which in Greek then becomes Jesus. It means he saves. And Gabriel, although not named by Matthew in Matthew's gospel account, Gabriel will give the reason in Matthew chapter 2, no, 1. I think it's Matthew 1. It is there that the angel declares why they name him Jesus. Because he will save his people from their sins. That message is not recorded here by Luke. Verse 32. Well, I mean, even before we do that. So the very name of Jesus himself already pointed at what he was going to do. It pointed at why he was here. The Messiah had come to save his people. To be the true king that had been missing for really at this point over a thousand years. Going back to before Saul was the first king over Israel to the true king God himself. He will be great. <laughs> That's an understatement. Uh, yes, Jesus is great. He's more than great. He is everything. He will be called the Son of the Most High. A true statement. The Most High is a reference to God, and Jesus is the Son of God. The promise of 2 Samuel appears again here in verse 32, that the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of, Dave, of Jacob forever, Jacob being one of the ancestors of David. Jacob, other name, is Israel. So Jesus will reign over Israel forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. I mean, imagine hearing such a promise that your son would be the son of the most high and would reign over the throne of David. 
as king forever. Wow, what a promise that that would be. What a what a shock that would be to hear such a thing. But it is the fulfillment of the promise God gave to David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And it is the very first thing Jesus comes preaching. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand or has come near, depending on your translation. Depending on your gospel account that you're in, the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. And the kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. It is the reign of God himself over all of his creation. We have that reign word used here in verse 33. Very helpful to think of. All right, let's read the second part of this text, 34 to 38. Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Then Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Luke chapter 1 records the response both of Zechariah and Mary to the angel Gabriel upon hearing of the conception of a child. Zechariah responded back in verse 18 and said, How shall I know this, for I am an old man? Notice the similarity between their responses. He said, How shall I know this? She asked, How will this be? He said, For I am an old man. She said, Since I am a virgin. For both of them, it's a question of, Okay, what's going to happen here? This doesn't seem, this doesn't seem like the way I know things work. Old men don't have kids. Virgins don't have kids. How is this going to be? How will this be, Lord? Speak. The angel Gabriel responds to Zechariah by calling him, well, doubting, and points to, points to that idea and then punishes him for it and, and makes him speechless, which is a major deal as a priest. He can no longer serve in the Lord's temple. And it was his turn. He was in the temple when Gabriel visited him. He is struck mute until John is born nine months later, at which point his, well, roughly at which point, his voice returns as he is able to declare that the baby to, is to be named John. Mary's response, being similar, is not called doubt. Now, it's possible that there's something to that. It is possible that even though their statements sound almost identical to one another, that one was spoken with doubt and one was spoken in faith. The other possibility here, though, is simply that God treated them differently because they benefited from being treated differently. Zechariah needed to learn to trust in the Lord. But Mary needed to be able to tell of the Christ child to those that she would interact with. So it could be in the difference there of how their lives would play out. I don't know. Uh, again, it would be reading too much into this text to try and speak more to that. 
but it is noticeable that how strikingly similar their responses are, and yet the angel Gabriel responds to them differently. And so here, the angel's response, Gabriel's response is that God will do it. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. So this is the Spirit's conception uh, at play. The Most High, God himself, will overshadow you. The child is holy. The child is set apart. This is not a worldly child. Verse 36 is offered almost as proof. Behold, your your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived. So not something they would normally have viewed as possible. Elizabeth had been barren. She was not able to have children. And yet here in her old age, God has visited her and given her the gift of a child. And if Mary wants to know the validity of this, she can check it out herself which she does, right? She goes and she visits Elizabeth. That's what's coming up in the text after our, our reading for this week. Verse 37, nothing will be impossible with God. This is a phrase actually that Jesus himself, the boy child in her womb, well, momentarily to be in her womb, Jesus will speak similarly in Luke chapter 18, verse 27. Jesus will say that nothing is impossible with God, although he says it very specifically in the context about salvation. Because it's also in Matthew and Mark's gospel accounts as well. The question at hand is, how then can we be saved? If the rich man cannot be saved, how can we be saved? And the response of Jesus essentially is, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So similar words from verse 37 will be on the lips of Jesus himself. And so having heard Gabriel's reply, Mary gives a good answer. She gives a faithful answer. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. You know, you think of the call of Moses in Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush and how much he resisted that call. About five times he tried to weasel out of it. And then you have an account here with Mary and she simply, she hears God's proclamation to her and she says, okay, let it be according to your word. She humbly acknowledges who she is as a servant of the Lord, which is who we are today. All of us, we are servants of the Lord. And then she simply says, let God's word be. Let it be true. And those words, let it be to me according to your word, are words that, while you may not actually end up speaking them, you certainly could. You could pray those words. Those would be, that would be a good prayer. Those words are true of you nonetheless. That is what our faith holds to. Indeed, that it would be according, it would be to us according to his word. That means the things we talked about in our epistle reading, that forgiveness of sins, that salvation, that, that life that never ends, those things have been promised to you by God's word. So yes, indeed, we pray, let it be done to me according to your word, because then we're praying that we, through our faith in Christ, have those wonderful gifts that he has so promised to give us. And at this moment, Gabriel departs from her. And again, that has been historically 
the point at which the church believes she conceived the child, that Christ was incarnate, that he took on flesh as just a, a tiny, tiny, tiny child inside of Mary's womb. That's the Christmas story at its very beginning, nine months before it happened. Now, we don't have nine months until Christmas. We just have a few days. But that's the story of Advent. Christ has come to save his people. Oh,